These Sunday nights we're looking at the letter of Paul to the Romans and we are completing chapter 6 of Romans tonight and the last verse. It's a very familiar verse. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Very famous words they are. One of the great statements of Christianity How important that we understand it. If you're going to reject the Christian religion, then you must know what the Christian religion teaches. If you're going to show some intellectual curiosity and some questioning and want to know what is the Christian faith, then it is summarized uh, so uh, comprehensively and briefly in these words. The Apostle Paul enjoyed doing this. There are these uh, statements in his various letters and in his sermons in which he brings together great truths of the gospel in a nutshell. So the first thing I want to draw your attention to is that uh, these words are like a fork in the road of life. What do we see here? Well, we see here two possibilities confronting every individual who comes into the world. And just two They're shown in this verse. The wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, our our Lord. The message of the gospel is often put as starkly as that. Uh, You have a, a house that's built on sand and it collapses and the house that's built on rock and it stands. You have a You have to pass through a wide gate. And many go along that road. And then there is a narrow gate. And it leads to life. There's a broad way. There's a narrow way. You can serve mammon. Wealth, money, stuff. Or you can serve the living God. That's the choice. There are just two possibilities. And all the non-Christian views confronting Mankind belong to one category. The world, of course, makes a great deal of minor differences, but from the standpoint of the Bible and of salvation, they are all one and the same. They start with man and they end with man. And people can divide themselves into various nationalities and they're divided by iron curtains, bamboo curtains. They're divided politically and socially and racially, and in many other aspects, but all those differences are in the end cosmetic. Such differences don't count in the light of eternity. And this division that's made by the Bible is the ultimate division. Death or eternal life. They're just two choices. There's a fork in the road. And one way only can be taken, and then the other is rejected. And then again, these two possibilities are completely different from one another. I emphasize that word completely. They're all together. They are entirely different. As this chapter, as we've gone through it, shows to us, there's nothing in common between these two views. They don't gradually shade from the one to the other. There are no shades in the spiritual life. Everything is black or white. You don't gradually pass from the one to the other. There's no spectrum here. 
at all. There are stark differences. There are absolute contrasts. And I may never cease to emphasize this truth. There is nothing in common between the Christian world and life view and the non-Christian in a spiritual sense. Nothing at all. They're absolutely different in their concept of origins, in their concept of the purpose of our life and then the destiny of men and women. They are completely different. And this brings us to the third and last general point, that each of of these two positions, which are so essentially different, have their own internal consistency. Each one is consistent with itself. Different from the other, but consistent within itself. In other words, each one of these two leads by an inexorable law to ends which are quite inevitable. It's a conveyor belt, and that's where it's going. Start off on the one road, and you will then land in a given destination. Go on the other road, and you're bound to end up in an entirely different destination. There is this inward consistency within the two, although they are essentially different. And here the apostle is particularly concerned to emphasize the difference in the goal that is attained. And so these words are particularly concerned with the different ends, the teleology of the lifestyles. Now let me move on to my next point, that the first alternative set before us is the wages of sin. When we were first married, then I needed a job. I just finished my studies, and I was waiting for a church to call me to be its pastor-preacher. We were living in Swansea, and I saw a job advertised in the local paper, which entailed working for the National Coal Board. And I got the job as a wages clerk. I worked for the Kinhydre Anthracite coal mine near Llanelli, and my wage was £12 a week. I never expected to be paid a penny more, nor a penny less, for my employment. I worked from nine to five, Monday through Friday, and I was paid that wage for very simple and straightforward, even monotonous work. Monday through Thursday, I sat at an office desk, and I worked out the wages of the colliers, their overtime, their absences, and so on. And then I went to various pits in the southeast Coalfield of Wales on Friday, and I paid the men in cash. And none of them ever thanked me for their wages. I was a mere hand that came out of a little pay window and gave them a manila envelope. I was the NCB agent remunerating them for the work that they had done. I had no name. It was no gift from me to them. It was what they had earned in dirty, difficult, dangerous work, half a mile underground, in the narrow seams of the Kinhydra colliery, very difficult, and soon the colliery closed as uneconomic. There is a definiteness, and there is a certainty about wages. Wages are different from a spontaneous gift. A gift is often unexpected. It's even wrapped up so that you don't know what's inside the package. Wages, unlike a gift, are fixed. A collier had done his week's work. He had duly clocked in 
and he had done some overtime and he expected then the wage he would receive would be commensurate with the overtime that he had done. He handed in um, his uh, number and he was given his manila pay packet. The amount wasn't debated by the NCB. He didn't try to strike a bargain now with the miner. The quantity of the pay and the overtime was determined beforehand. And the payment was uh, simply a formal and an impersonal affair. So what has all this got to do with Christianity? Well, this familiar phrase before us is the wages of sin. Meaning the wages that are paid by sin. They're telling us that every sin pays the sinner a wage. Now a Roman general in the first century would see that his soldiers would receive a wage. And frequently it was in kind. It would be in meat, in wine, in money, in lands, in booty. You can translate this word wages by rations. It's something you earned. It's something you deserved. Something for which you had rendered a service. Something that you've worked for. So Paul says, all who serve Lord Sin will receive a payment from sin. By the word sin, he's talking about uh, very concrete and real wickednesses. There is wrong as well as right. Not everything is grey. There is the liar, and he boasts to his buddies that when he dated you, you were easy, and he got everything he wanted from you. There is the bully who beats up his wife. There is the banker who fixes interest rates and his company is fined a billion pounds for his lawlessness. There's the executioner who beheads on camera. There's the thief and he breaks into your room and he takes your iPad and anything else that's valuable. And on top of that he picks up the wine bottle, and he pours the contents over the bed, and then he squirts the tomato ketchup bottle there too. He stamps on your photographs, and he breaks the glass, and he's defiling you. I'm describing what happened to a girl, a student in our congregation named Beth. Or uh, there is the strong and merciless and stinking rapist, who follows you home one dark night and bundles you into a garden. There's the arsonist who pours petrol through your letterbox and throws a lighted match and so on. Such actions are wicked. And we're being told here that sinners are going to be paid for what they have done. In other words, every thief and liar and cheat and abuser and killer is going to be judged for what he's done. A wage is going to be paid him for his evil works. The Lord Jesus Christ has made that abundantly clear. The words of our Lord are at their very center. They have this conviction that there are wages that every sinner is going to receive. 
The wages are the righteous response of God our creator, the God who is light, in whom is no darkness at all, the God who is holy and and straight. And he is against all that is tawdry and cruel and mean and merciless and despicable and deceitful and violent. God is not indifferent. He doesn't squat like the sphinx while the desert winds blow around him and is immovable. He's not like that at all. No human law is complete without a sanction. A law without a penalty is altogether worthless and pitiful. Are the disapprovals of God a mere sigh? Are they just a a frown and a tut-tut? Are they weak like that? Here's this phrase, the wages of sin. You consider the world in which we have to live our lives. And you can see that there's an inexorable connection between our behavior and the consequences. You offend the laws of health, and the result will follow, inevitably. Terrible certainty. You keep drinking excess alcohol, and your liver changes for the worst. You keep snorting cocaine, and your nose disintegrates. You keep taking amphetamines, and you lose touch with reality. You smoke cigarettes, 20 more each day, and your lungs get filled with tar. You constantly overeat and you became obese. And no refusal to recognize those consequences is going to change that reality. No excuses will avail. Brief highs, strong sobbing will count nothing. The retribution, however long it's deferred, is on its way. The train is coming. It's hurtling towards us. In the sphere of physical death, one thing is certain. The wages of sinning is death. But many people act as though the wage clerk can be cheated. That you can present yourself at the pay window on payday and get a different wage, get a better wage from what you've earned. Do you have that fantasy? Do you really think that in this bodily and physical accounting, you can cheat, that you can drink a bottle of whiskey a day and your health won't suffer as a result. We get what's coming to us, physically. We get it. There's no escape. You are paid the wages of excess and folly for what you've done to your own body. You've done it. And our souls, well, the same rule is found. A man cheats on his wife. A person fails to declare the money they've earned when they fill in their tax forms. A cowboy builder uses shoddy material. A student plagiarizes another person's work. A man lies to a woman and he tells her, no, I'm not married. A cyclist in the Tour de France takes drugs A member of parliament makes false claims in his expense account. A senior member of the armed services tells uh, the government that an enemy country has weapons of mass destruction and that they should invade. 
A Muslim tells people that uh, he heard a woman blaspheming the name of Muhammad and they stone her to death. A man fails to tell a girl that he's HIV positive. A political leader vainly promises voters that there'll be no increase in taxation. And in all those cases, there are going to be consequences. I'm saying that in the inner moral sphere, just as in the realm of the physical and how we treat our bodies, there's the same inexorableness of the law. Don't, don't deceive yourselves. God grant that uh, you don't hope to cheat or, or lie or display your physical powers or that you are silent when you should speak up. God grant that you live your life responsibly, convinced of, of this divine law. The wages of sin is death. It means death in every form. The moment man disobeyed God, he died spiritually, and that meant separation from God, alienation, a life lived carelessly without God, without the Creator. And that meant inevitably physical death, the rending apart of body and soul. It meant inner spiritual death. It meant that there's not a spark of love for the Lord Jesus in our hearts. Not a flicker of living trust in him. And it means that we're heading for the place where spiritual zombies inevitably end their ghastly lives. A place of iniquity, a place of uncleanness. The cesspit of the universe, the bonfire of the vanities. It's the place eternally outside of God's will with all its consequent miseries and frustrations. I'm saying the wages have been fixed already. There's no debate when it comes to payday. And you can dream that you're going to get a million, but you're going to get what you've earned, not a penny more and not a penny less. All the factors will be brought into consideration. Every circumstance, every weakness, all the mysteries of your DNA and your genetic makeup the pressures you lived under, the influences that pushed you to the edge. The judge of all the earth is kind and wise, and he'll evaluate all those extenuating circumstances. The judgment will be absolutely fair. The judge of all the earth does right. Every mouth will be stopped when the verdict is announced. God will determine our eternal destinies. There's no escape from the wages, you're not a victim in the way that you have hurt other people. You can't blame your parents. You can't blame your educators. You can't blame culture. You did it. It was your choice. It was not that the devil made you do it. It was not that you were trapped and that all the alternatives facing you were evil alternatives. We will reap what we have sown. You think of the Sermon on the Mount. It's uh, great for its logical eloquence alone. It's great for that reason. But it's far greater because it's true. This is what the Lord Jesus once said. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. 
For in the same judgment wherewith you judge others, you will be judged. And the measures you have used will be used to measure you. You know, the way you dismiss someone without listening, without thinking. The way you say, well, that's religion. And refuse to think further. You say, no, I won't take that gospel you're offering me. I I won't read it. You've made up your mind. Would you want to be judged in the same way? Without any examination of your life at all? Have you just casually measured, summed up a friend's life uh, with little sympathy and little knowledge? And you said, too narrow, too extreme. Not generous enough in views towards other people. Who can be sure of these things? God will one day measure us all by his perfect standards. I shall have no other gods before me. Not make any idols and bow down and and serve them. Not take my name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. Honor your father and your mother. No violence. No sexual immorality. Don't take what isn't yours. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't covet. And God judges every life by what he says. We live in a moral universe and we can't escape receiving the wages. Jesus spoke in the Sermon on the Mount. He also said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And you may have thought, well, I don't like the prospect of being snuffed out. This life and its momentum and its relationships and then absolute nothingness. No one I know, nothing I know, I, I don't exist. That's horrible. So I'm hoping that uh, there's going to be a good future for me. Oh, I hope so. I hope for every one of you here. I hope a good eternity for you all. But the Lord Jesus, who's far more loving than I am, he said, not everyone will enter the kingdom of heaven. He didn't speak of a universal salvation for all people. Not even those who are very religious. And to say, Lord, Lord, not them, just some. There's going to be a great separation. Do you see this biblical worldview? Do you understand the moral constitution of the universe in which we live? It's a very terrible thing. So let's, let's not think we can ignore it or trifle with it. There's always the problem of the wages. Jesus once spoke to Judas who was about to betray him and Christ told Judas that it would be better for the man who was to betray him, that he had never been born. That was better. So all mankind, our Lord says, is governed by an inexorable law, and that law establishes by an immutable decree the fearful consequences of of our sinning. The wages of sin is death. 
And then finally it says here, the second alternative, the gift of God. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You know, wages are not a gift. We've earned them by a week of work, a month of work. What the vain man and the cruel man and the killer and the rapist deserve is judgment. We bring death upon ourselves by what we've done, our actions, physical death. And then what the book of Revelation calls the second death. A place of woe, of separation from God, of God's condemnation for what we are. But eternal life, eternal life is not like that. Eternal life is not a wage. Eternal life is a gift. It's God's gift. In other words, it's something we haven't worked for. And can hold our heads erect and say, well, yeah, I was smart. And I did what God said and this is how he has rewarded me. It's unearned. It's utterly unmerited. It's beauty and it's breathtaking glory bears no resemblance at all to our just deserts. We, we haven't merited it because we were, well, we were pretty decent. We always tried to help. We always did our best. We were decent citizens. It's not because of that. Oh, I hope you are decent citizens. I hope you are striving to do your best. But eternal life is a gift. A gift from God. It's a present. It's solely a result of the kindness and the goodness and the mercy of God to people who are quite undeserving of such magnificence. His pity towards those who don't deserve his kindness at all. It's a personal bestowal of a God who sees us and knows all about us and yet loves us. What is eternal life? Well, it doesn't merely mean everlasting existence. It does mean, of course, that you will live forever. All of us will live as as long as God. We are these wonderful creatures made a little lower than the angels and crowned with glory and and honor. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. There's a Shakespeare and there's a Mozart and there's a Dickens, and there's a Beethoven and a Bach, and there's a Leonardo da Vinci. And what extraordinary creativity and brilliance. What a sense of beauty. What an ability to communicate those things to others. Men are made in God's image. The light of the life of God is there in everyone. A conscience is there in every single person. And eternal life, then, is that fulfillment, that self-integration, that realization of our full potential by what the grace of God gives to those who welcome that grace into their lives. So it subdues all that's mean and selfish and tawdry, and it enriches us in all that is lovely and, and fine and beautiful and glorious And there is a place then that God is preparing. New heavens, a new earth, where we are free from spot or wrinkle or or any such thing. Where we enjoy the presence of our creator in a new heavens and a new earth. 
who cosmically regenerated, enjoying the glory which God will give us, the glory he gave to his son, the, the man Christ Jesus, when he raised him from the dead. And we, we joined to him, we shall be sharing that magnificence. That's what eternal life means, sharing, enjoying the life of God for eternity without the slightest uh, suspicion of an admixture of, uh, of good and evil. No dilution of God and ourselves transformed to enjoy the, the beatific vision, the vision of God, the presence of the God who is infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness and truth the God who is Father, the God who is Son, the God who is Holy Spirit, and the mighty Creator who said, let there be light, and there was light, the God who sustains this world. It lives and moves and has its being in Him and you, the God of providence. And there will be no sin when He is finished with the world that He has made. There will be no sighs, there will be no vain regrets, There will be no groans of memories of past follies. There will be no grief, no tears, no partings. It will be unadulterated magnificence in God's presence, fullness of joy. It means full life for our bodies and our souls and our minds and our spirits. and Every vestige, every relic of all that we are ashamed of removed forever. We are transfigured and all the potential of all that is good and creative and aesthetically pleasing and righteous. It's something that even Adam didn't enjoy. Before the fall, Adam was perfect. Adam was innocent. But Adam didn't have eternal life. And when he defied God and did it his way, he died. But in Jesus Christ, then, the last Adam and uh, his children enjoy more blessings than old Adam lost. We enjoy unsullied, eternal comfort, the presence of God with us forever and ever. That eternal life, it begins in this world. Every child of God, every, every Christian you know, they, they all who've repented of their sins and trusted in the Savior. They, they have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So we've received that life. And yet it's just a down payment. It's just an earnest, a sample, the first installment of what increasingly we will know and which we are going to enjoy after death. It's the gift of God. It's God's free present to us. And how is it possible that we've not paid for it, that we've, there's no wage that we can give that, that's in any way worthy of, of such blessing? Well, Paul tells us in this verse before us, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, he says, 
the life of God, the life of eternity is offered to mankind and it's promised to all of those who are joined to Jesus Christ, who are in him. It is because of him, because we are one with him, like a branch in a vine and the life of the vine goes into that branch and it becomes fruitful. So we join to Jesus Christ and, and his life then produces a change, a grand transformation, a, a beauty, a loveliness, an ethical transformation, a metamorphosis in morality. It's because of him. It's because of Christ Jesus, God's gift, God loving the world, and not sending an angel, but... God sending his son into the world to live the righteous life we have failed to live, to fulfill all righteousness, to pray for his enemies when they crucified him. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. To show his patience that he was attainable and accessible and mothers brought their children and gave their children to him to covet God's blessing on them. That's what they wanted from this kind and good and pure man, this lovely man. No one like him. This Lord Jesus Christ fulfilled the law of God for us, loved God with all his heart, loved his neighbor as he loved himself. And that life of Christ is imputed, is given, is credited to our account. And his death was an atoning death Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. There is something in the very nature of who God is and what he is. That without atonement, there can be no pardon for us. It's not an easy thing for God to give us eternal life. There was a wage and it was paid by Jesus. By his life and by his death, the cost was covered. All because of him, his incarnation, his extraordinary teaching, his agony and bloody sweat, his resurrection, his ascension, his enthronement now, his coming where two or three gather in his name, how God providentially works, so how he brings a Christian friend into your life, how he gives you a birth in a, in a family where they know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. How he brings you in to hear the message of the gospel and you don't mock, but you seriously think about it. You consider what's being said. Like tonight, that's why he's brought you here and he's given me this message to bring to you this evening. It's not lucky. It's not by chance. It's because nothing happens by chance. But God works all things together for good to them that love him. Without him, all we have is us. That's it. All you've got is yourself. Your limited experience of life. Your wits. Your energy. Your finite resources. Your hunches. Your plans. And that's all. No power outside yourself to intrude and perforate your life. Nothing to guide you, nothing to assist you in marriage. Living in that little house with that one person for the rest of your life. And parenthood, when children come, and when they're sick, 
when they're troubled or less than perfect. When you're in old age, when your partner's ill, and you're dying, just you. That's all you've got. But in Jesus Christ, you have everything that's necessary for how a man in the image and likeness of God should live. Alive to God's influence. Alive to God's assessments and values. And so enabled to do things that that are pleasing to him. Not to give in to temptation. Not to say, well, he wants it or she wants it and I want it and so he can't be wrong. But to judge. And he enables us to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. What makes any person a Christian is the grace of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. No other explanation. Nothing at all that we can boast of. That we were smart in making the right choice. That we pat ourselves on the back forever and ever. It's all due due to infinite kindness and compassion. It's all due to the exceeding riches of his grace. It's because of his abundant mercy. It's because of the God who is there. And the God who is not silent. And the God who is interested in us and loves us and works things. So that we come to know this God for ourselves. Oh, may that love, may that grace possess us and deal with us. May we receive Jesus Christ into our lives. It's an action of your soul. As the Holy Spirit comes and he takes the word of God and he applies it. And you know you have been readied for this moment and prepared for it. And you see it. And you have dealings with him. You kneel in the loneliness and silence of your own room and you try and put things together and you start to tell God that you're sorry that it's been so long and you've been so reluctant in coming to him and you're ashamed of so many things and you ask for his forgiveness and and his help and you can't face the future anymore without him and you ask him to be to you what you need and you don't know what those needs are but he knows and you trust him and you give yourself to him the Christian comes to this fork in the road then and he takes the less travelled route the one that many will not take because it's it's not popular But it leads to life. And you set out. You put your hand in Christ's hand and you say, come with me now. I can't take it by myself. I'm going to take this road with you. It leads to life. I must have life. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let us pray. We ask, Heavenly Father, for grace now to be given to us to understand and be humbled and 
taught by the word of God and not to dismiss great words, great truths about the Lord Jesus Christ lightly. Show us what we are. Show us who he is. Show us how we should respond. Give the grace of faith and repentance to every heart here. In your love and your mercy, you've brought us here tonight. Oh, do us good in your kindness. Forgive us our sins. Help us to become true followers of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, we ask in his name. Amen.